0: first four chapters of Deuteronomy recorded Moses' first sermon to the people of Israel as they are only weeks away from crossing over the Jordan River and entering into the Promised Land. We made note that in this sermon, what you have Moses not doing is just simply giving the law again, often... Deuteronomy is portrayed that way. The Septuagint even gave the name second law to this book when that's not at all what the book is. As as the book opens, it declares that this is Moses explaining the law to the people, teaching them, giving them sermons about what they must do as they prepare to enter into the promised land. That first sermon called upon Israel to be faithful to God. And to understand the road to success, to enter glory, and what they needed to do to accomplish that. The second sermon begins in chapter 4, verse 44. And it goes all the way to the end of chapter 26. So you never can tell me I have a long sermon because Moses completely outdid me on that one. It goes all the way to the end of 26 as his second lesson. Obviously, we will not do that in one shot for a sermon. We'll be spending quite a bit of time breaking down some of the great things that he teaches to Israel uh, in, in this sermon. As you have in at the end of chapter, chapter 4, the declaration, in verse 44, this is the law that Moses set before the people, the testimony, the statutes, of the rules. Essentially now Moses is going to give the law and explain then all of what that means. Chapter 5 and in verse 1 we read, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. Now you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up into the mountain. So there's the the reminder of how all of this began as Moses now introduces the covenant to Israel and some important things that he establishes as he begins this sermon. Verse 1, I want you to learn it and keep it. Everything that I'm about to tell you about the law, you need to know it. You need to understand it. You need to be aware of it. and You need to do what it says. He then makes a, an interesting point that I think is useful for our consideration. He says, this covenant was not made with anybody else. This covenant wasn't made with Gentiles. It wasn't made with other nations. In fact, it wasn't made even before that generation who had been at Mount Sinai. Nobody else received that except this group who had been at Mount Sinai. He says, that's who this law was given to. That's always an important note. This is a very important passage for people who have questions about the law of Moses and who it applied to here you have Moses saying it applies only to us to Israel alone was this covenant then given and then Moses reminds them that something that we had seen all throughout Exodus and all throughout numbers that Moses over and over again acted as a mediator standing between God and the people and one of the first times we see that is when they come to Sinai and the people say do not let God speak again you go up to God and have God tell you the law and you come down and tell us what he said and we will do it and the whole covenant within was based upon Moses going before God receiving the law taking it to the people the people listening and obeying what Moses then told them this then sets up the first picture and one of the most important pictures we'll see three important pictures tonight and this one is the first one in verse six. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I want you to notice as you scan your eyes down, then from after verse six, all the way to verse 21, it is after that declaration that you now see what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, here are the laws that are given. And what I want you to observe with the location of this declaration is that first God says, here's what I did for you. The first words of God were not, here's what you must do. The first words of God was, I saved you. I rescued you. I delivered you. And thus obedience is supposed to be the joyful response from God to God for the salvation that he's given. That's the whole basis here. We cannot jump into the covenant and jump into all the laws that are being given without first recognizing God reminds them of the most important thing. I came and I saved you. I rescued you. I have acted on your behalf. And now because I have acted on your behalf, now keep the following commands. This is to be the result of God's salvation, the result of God's grace, the result of God's mercy that we obey all that God has said. I think that's such an important principle to begin with. It's not just merely please do these things and let's just see how that goes. But God is saying, I I saved you. You belong to Me. I am your rescuer. I am your Savior. I am the one who has delivered you from everything that you were crying out to God for. If you remember in the book of Exodus, remember how miserable their time was, the, the harshness of their days and they are crying out. And we read in Exodus that God heard their cries and then acted on their behalf. And now here's God saying, I have acted on your behalf. Now, therefore, keep the covenant, keep the laws and keep the rules that I am giving you. Thus, from verse 7 through verse 21 is a statement about the Ten Commandments. I will not go back through those because I not only taught them when we went through through Exodus. But before we went through Exodus, I did a, a sermon on every single one of the 10 commandments. And so I'm going to assume that I shouldn't do that again, because that was like three years ago. And I know we probably have all forgotten those things, but They're all online if you want to go into all the details of of those things. Rather, I want to get the big picture of what chapter 5 is trying to do. After Moses reminds them of the covenant, notice that's not the end. If this was just second law, then that would be the end and there's the law, go do it. No, Moses expounds upon that. He's now explaining the law and preaching to them. And he says there in verse 23, "...as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all of the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man is still alive." Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? It's an amazing understanding that Israel has. And they say, we are stunned. We are astonished because God has spoken. We have heard the voice of God. And notice they describe that as God showing His glory and greatness. We have heard God speak. And notice the conclusion that they drew from that. They say there in in verse 24, This day we have seen God speak with men. And basically... Can you believe we're still alive? It makes you want to try to visualize what that sounded like. We tried our best when we were in Exodus because it says the trumpets were getting louder and louder and the mountain was quaking and then God just speaks the Ten Commandments. And it was so terrifying that even we're told that Moses himself was fearful of what was going on. And here Moses is now reiterating that to the people and saying, when God spoke, you were terrified and you understood the glory of what God was doing, that his voice was significant. When God speaks, that is everything. In fact, so much so that the people would even say, we cannot believe that we are still alive, that we were able to hear that. At the end of verse 25, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. And then notice in verse 26, for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived. What a reaction. And you might read that and think, well, they were being a little bit dramatic. But notice verse 28 <coughs> And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of these people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. That's exactly the response God wanted. The glory of God comes down on that mountain. He speaks the Ten Commandments. They are terrified to such a degree that they believe that they will not live. In fact, they are stunned by the grace of God that they are still alive after hearing it, even proclaiming no one's been able to hear that before and still live, yet we still live. And God says, that's right. In fact, notice now verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me, to keep all my commandments that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Notice what God says. That's the heart I always want. That's the kind of reverence I want. That's the kind of fear I want. That's the kind of understanding I want this people to always have is that it is the grace of God that you still live. And I spoke to you those things and that you have a sense and awareness of the glory and splendor and majesty of God. And they were just caught up in that. And their response here, God says, was right. Their response was We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We need somebody between us and God. And God goes, that's right. You need to understand that. You need to understand that somebody better be between you and me. Because my glory is that magnificent. That's how mighty I am. And that's how powerful even my voice is. It's so interesting that that's the thing they put their finger on. They don't say, who has been there and watching a mountain shake like that? They say, who could ever stand here and hear the voice of God like that? And God goes, that's what I want you to have. Is that all? I want you to have that respect. I want you to have that fear and reverence. Because I think what Moses is trying to get across to them is that ultimately disobedience comes from not having a fear of God's voice. Ultimately, disobedience comes because we don't care about what He has to say. We no longer revere His words. We don't care what He says. It's not important to us anymore. But at this moment, they care. They want to know what God says and say, don't let God tell us like that anymore, but you tell us and we will do it. And oh, the heart that God wants His people to have. The heart that says, Just let God say the word and I'll absolutely do it. Such fear and reverence and awe and respect that the people have at this moment. And I think it is such an interesting picture of God who wishes, knowing that's not going to be the case really ever again, but wishes, oh, that they would always have that. That's the essence of the heart that God desires from His people. You'll notice then, The picture is he describes that fear then leading to obedience. Here is the fear that I want you to have. Verse 32, you shall be careful therefore to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall not walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live. That it may go well with you and that you will live long in the land that you possess. Ultimately, your fear and respect will lead to obedience. You will do as I say because you fear who I am. You understand my voice and you will obey. And notice how that rolls right into chapter 6 verse 1. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may Multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you hear the emphasis? Two huge things emphasized over and over again. One, he keeps saying, obey because God's laws are good. He said it back in 532 and 33, do these things that you may live, that it may go well with you. He says it again in verses, verses 1 through 3, to do these things so it will go well with you. Verse 2, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Verse 3, that it may go well with you. Here is an important principle about God's laws. God's laws are for our good. And we challenge that and don't believe that. But God is saying, my laws are for your good. The reason I give you this covenant and I give you these commands and I call upon you to obey them is because it will go well with you if you do these things. This will go well for your life. You will live long on the land and you will prosper. And my blessings will be able to flow to you. Do as I say and it will go well for you. That shouldn't be that hard for us to grasp. If you have children, why do you have the rules you have? All of those rules were given so that it would go well with them. Every single one of them. Why do you not let your kids stick a fork in a light socket? (laughs) Because it will go well with them if they do not. Why don't you let them play in the street? They think you're inhibiting their freedom. How dare you not let me do what I want to do? You as the wise parent are doing it for their good. Every rule from a good parent is for the child's benefit. And God is saying, every rule I have given to you is for your benefit. That is so important for us to keep in mind. Sometimes we picture God's laws as if God was just randomly throwing out laws to see. Now, let's see if I can get a bunch of people to obey these random laws. Good luck. Let's see what happens. Do you really love me? Let's do some crazy laws. Here you go. He says, no, no, no. The things that I'm telling you are not for that purpose. The things that I'm giving to you are always for your good. They are for your benefit. They are to help you. They will protect you. They will give you life in the land. And so the two repeated emphasis, listen and obey, listen and obey, listen and obey. And if you do, it will go well with you. It will go well with you. It will go well with you. God's message hasn't changed. Do as he says, and it will go well with you. That's the whole picture. I've given these things to you so that you will have the life that God intends, that His laws are for our good and that we must accept that by faith. That is the trust we must develop before God is that we believe that every single law, every single rule, every single command, everything that God has ever said, whether we understand it or not and whether we like it or not, is for our good and given by God. We often want to sit back and go, well, I don't like some of these. That is not our prerogative. Well, I don't understand why God would... That's not our prerogative. Our place is to understand that God loves us and that every law and every rule is for our good. And that's all we need to know. And is that not exactly what we do as parents to our kids? I don't explain the idea of cars to a nine-month-old. I just simply say we're not going in the street. And you better trust me. That's all God's doing. Do you believe me? Then do as I say. See, obedience here is described as for our good. This leads now to the heart of the law. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Notice that this statement is everything to the law of Moses. And I want you to be struck by that. Sometimes the law of Moses gets painted as well. It was just a bunch of rules and regulations that people had to do. But when we come into the new covenant, now God wants the heart. Read verse 5 again. God wanted their hearts. That is not a new covenant idea. That has always been the idea. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And what you notice that you see Moses doing in this expression is you will understand then that loving God is on God's terms. Notice that Moses doesn't say, love the Lord your God, and whatever expression that you feel that you want to show toward God as how you would like to show your love for Him is perfectly acceptable to God. The whole context leading up to that is do what I say because I rescued you. I saved you. I delivered you. I did all of this for you. Now listen to me. Obey my commands. It will go well with you. And I want you to love me because you see that. Because you see that I rescued you. And because you see that my commands are for your good. Love me with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your mind. That's the basis of what the law is all about. It was never about just simply do the rules. That's never been the equation. In fact, when you read the prophets, that's exactly what they're condemned for. They didn't stop sacrifices. They did all the externals. They kept it all going and God didn't receive it. The book of Malachi is a great example. They're doing all of the worship, and God says, Just stop the sacrifices, close the doors, and quit it, because I want heart. And if you do not love me from your heart and soul and might, then it doesn't matter. All the rest that you would read in the book of Deuteronomy hinges on this, which is fascinating because that's exactly what Jesus said. Not only do Matthew and Mark's accounts describe these people coming to Jesus and asking, What is the greatest commandment? But listen to what one of them, the Gospel of Luke, how is recorded when this lawyer comes to him. Luke 10, verse 25, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew and Mark have greatest commandment. Luke has, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. This is absolutely the heart of what God wants. This is exactly what God desires. This is the whole of the heart of the law is to love the Lord your God and Jesus confirms that. He doesn't disagree with the lawyer's assessment saying, no, 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 that's not it. No, that's right. That's everything. In fact, in another passage, all of the law hangs on this very idea. All of the law is all built on this peg right here. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Which means I think we should talk about that for a minute. Because I think we have the tendency to just think, well, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might is just kind of repetition for emphasis. And it's really not. I would like for you to visualize it more as three concentric circles that begins in the middle with loving the Lord with your heart. Now... To us, if we talk about loving from the heart, what we usually mean is an emotional kind of thing. That is not how ancient Near Easterners described loving from the heart. To us, we think of heart and mind as two separate ideas altogether, and that's not how they perceive those things. The heart was certainly the seat of emotions, but it also included the will. It included the mind. It included logic. And that was the idea behind it. We speak of it as emotions, but they are speaking of it being just the whole inner person. That idea of who you are as the inner being. So, your thought processes, your will and your desires, your emotions, your mind, that was all t- tied together with the idea of the heart. And so, this is kind of your center base. To say then love the Lord your God with all of your soul expands out to the circle a little bit more because the soul had a representation not only of the inner being but also the outer. It was basically a way to speak of your whole life. It included your, your body and your flesh and all that you, you, you are. This is your very being. So inside and outside of who you are, this is it. So love your, if to put it in our terms, it would be love the Lord your God with your inner self and with your body would be kind of the way we would put it to get a sense of it. So notice there's this moving outward. It's not just simply repetition but an idea of a pressing further and further beginning with love the Lord with your heart and mind and moving out to even with your body, love the Lord with your whole being of with who you are. And then he says love the Lord your God with all your might or with all of your strength. A little bit more challenging to put the Hebrew around this one because it would include everything else, That is accessible to you. A a good way to use the word would be with all of your resources, if you will. And so all of your abilities. It would include all of your strength. It would include your actions. It would include all that you possess. And so it again moves the circle outward. To put the three together, the idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might means that you would love the Lord without any reservation or qualification. It is who you are on inside, your body outside, and all that you do and all that you possess and with all the strength you have from start to finish every bit of your being. Is intended with that phrase. And that's what God is looking for. Is essentially an unrestrained love where nothing is held back. There is no concept of loving the Lord my God with some of myself. Or with some of my being. Or with only some of my possessions or some of my effort or some of my abilities. That's what God is erasing here is by saying, I want everything that makes up you along with all that you have and every ability and might you possess. This probably helps us understand a little bit about the idea of why you hear Jesus then walking around saying, if you want to follow me, you have to leave everything. Because he's not saying anything new. That was the essence of the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength would mean that everything about you and everything you have is completely devoted to God. That's what's being called for. Before we can go into any of the covenant stipulations, before he can describe anything more about what it lays out, what you have being described that God is calling for in the old covenant, what Jesus calls for in the new covenant, is all you are and all that you have are given to him. That's what he wants. And notice the basis because I rescued you and because everything I do for you is for your good and every command I've given you is for your good. And if you do these things, you will live and it will go well with you. But you have to give me everything. You have to give me every bit of who you are. You have to give me every ounce of your being, all that you claim about who you are and what you possess are given in love to Jesus. That's the picture that is being given. This explains why we see these kinds of statements in the New Testament. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You see, there's nothing unusual about that statement. Truly loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength demands that very idea. Because I'm giving everything to him, everything I possess, everything I am, everything that is about me is completely devoted to him. So there's no other definition to loving God. That's why God can just say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or as First John 2, 4 will say, whoever says I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Same idea. It's interesting. John does that in the gospels as well as in the letters. If you want to love God, then that means giving God absolutely everything about who we are and doing exactly as he says. That's the whole idea. Which should make sense to us in this, this space in Deuteronomy. Why go forward with all of the chapters of Deuteronomy that lie ahead if we aren't going to talk about what the basis is all about? You know, Deuteronomy is not out here are just all the litany of rules. No. the basis of Deuteronomy is: Do you love God? If you love God then you'll want to do this. And I think we would recognize, as was pointed out by Jesus over and over again, this is certainly no small request, is it? This is no easy thing. This is why Jesus would tell parables about builders who need to count the cost before they start building a structure. And a parable about going to war, counting the cost before you go into battle. Over and over again, Jesus would lay down challenges to people. We've seen that in our study of Mark. Here is a person who believes that they've kept all the law. Okay, great. Really? Let's see. One thing you lack, sell all that you have. Was he willing to do it? No. Guess what? That was called loving the Lord your God with all your might. All your resources, all that you possess, all of your abilities are devoted to God. He refused. Therefore, he did not love God. See, that's the praises that's being laid out. We sometimes come into the New Testament and read Jesus saying these things and go, wow, they must have really been blown away by this. Not if they understood the law properly. And that's why you have many disciples following. They're clicking into that going, yeah, I understand that. Jesus comes up and says to to disciples who are out there fishing and will tell them, come follow me. And what do you see them do? Drop everything and follow. And sometimes you read that and go, wow, that's radical. Actually, it's not. They loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. It is a large request. It is not a small request. But I think the idea of loving God without reservation should not be that difficult of a command when we consider. God did not hold anything back. In loving us. You see the basis of love is everything. That's why God puts forward. Do you see what I did? I held nothing back. This is why you have. He who did not spare his own son. He spared nothing. He didn't hold anything back. He gave it all. For us. So does not Unreasonable. For our God to come to us and say, I rescued and saved you. I held absolutely nothing back. And my commands are given for your good. Will you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind? That's the idea of the law. That's the idea of what God wanted from Israel. And why Jesus then walked around and confirmed that very message. Do this and you will live. Have the heart that God wishes Israel would always possess at that moment. That the voice of God is everything. And we must do exactly as he says. Because we love him. Because he rescued us. Because his laws are for our good. We're going to sing an invitation song now and we invite you then to come to Jesus and to see that very message is proclaimed through Jesus Christ to us. We would turn away from our sins because He has rescued. That we would choose to follow Him and serve Him with all of our heart. Confess Him to be our Master and Lord because He has rescued us. Because He loves us. And that we will obey Him because of what he's done for us. We love him because he first loved us. But friends, let us not fool ourselves into thinking that we love God when we turn around and willfully choose that we are not going to do some of the things that he's told us to do. Loving the Lord our God is not attending on Sunday. That's not it. Loving the Lord our God is not compliance to some of God's laws. Loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul and might, with this unreserved loyalty and and dedication means whatever he says we will do, wherever he sends, we will go because of what he's done for us. Can we help you respond to that invitation? We encourage you to do that now. Won't you come while we stand and sing?